The last hymn that we sang, I Need Thee Every Hour, has kind of an interesting background and story. It was written on a sunny morning in June 1872 by Annie Hawks. She was a 37-year-old housewife who was a member of the Hanson Place Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York. The church was pastored by Robert Lowry. Uh, He was himself a a prolific poet and composer. He wrote a number of hymns. You you know several of them. Shall We Gather at the River? Um, Christ Arose and Nothing But the Blood are three of his most uh, well-known. He encouraged Mrs. Hawks to cultivate her own poetic gift. She was loved to write poetry ever since she was uh, a girl. And on that June morning, while she was busy with her regular household tasks, she said, quote, suddenly I became so filled with a sense of nearness to the master that wondering how one could live without him, either in joy or in pain, these words were ushered into my mind. The thought at once taking full possession of me, I need thee every hour. Now, Pastor Lowry then wrote the music to the song and he added the refrain that we sang. Uh, This was 1872, a little bit later that year, um, Ira Sankey sang that hymn at the National Baptist Sunday School Convention. Anybody ever heard of Ira Sankey before? Probably most most of us have heard of him. Maybe if you haven't, you know of someone who is a little bit more famous that he traveled with uh, named Dwight L. Moody. All right, if you're familiar with the D.L. Moody and the Moody Bible Institute, uh, that Ira Sankey was, was, uh, worked hand-in-hand with Moody. And uh, so it was it, then later that next year, in 1873, this hymn began to be published in a number of hymnals and uh, kind of spread from there. Many years later, though, uh, interestingly enough, following her husband's death, Annie said this of her song. I did not understand at first why this hymn had touched the great throbbing heart of humanity. It was not until long after, when the shadow fell over my way, the shadow of a great loss, that I understood something of the comforting power in the words which had been, I had been permitted to give out to others in my hour of sweet serenity and peace. I need thee every hour. There's something powerful about songs and hymns that help us to put into words um, emotions and feelings that we either don't or can't express ourselves. Especially feelings that come to us in times of great distress and difficult trial. I think Mrs. Hawke's hymn carries with it much of the same sense of longing for the presence of God and the comfort of the Master that we see in Psalm 143. David sees himself as God's servant, and therefore he is dependent on his master for everything. But he is Yahweh's servant, which means not only does he depend on Yahweh for everything, but he owes Yahweh everything. He has an obligation to be righteous. And yet, as we saw just a couple of Psalms earlier, if we went back to Psalm 141 and looked there where David spoke about putting a guard over his mouth and keeping watch over his lips, not inclining his heart to evil. David recognized that he himself was not righteous. So there's definitely a tension here in Psalm 143 between what he knows he ought to be and what he knows he actually is. And I think we can all appreciate that. Now, if we just take a quick look at the structure of this psalm, you'll notice that it is divided right in the middle. At the end of verse 6, we have that little word, salah. We've talked about this word before. It appears a number of times in the Psalter. uh, And this is the last occurrence of it in the Psalter. It's a word that really can't be translated. No one Uh, knows for sure what it means specifically. There's lots of different theories. Um, But the way that it's used throughout the Psalter, it appears to be some form of a notation, probably a musical notation, instructing uh, that this is a place to pause and reflect. 
Uh, some have suggested that it's a reference to the music, suggesting it's time to switch to a higher key. And that may be as well, because it's a shift. It often, it often reflects uh, an opportunity to, re- to stop and think about what has just been said and then move into another verse or another idea, another thought. And this psalm, it effectively serves to separate the two halves of the psalm. The first half of Psalm 143 reads like a traditional lament psalm. There are a number of lament psalms throughout the uh, throughout the, the Psalter. What is a lament psalm? Well, a lament psalm is one where the psalmist is appealing directly to God um, to pay attention to his prayer, to act on his behalf and answer him. And there's a number of psalms like that throughout the Psalter, where the Psalter prays and says, Lord, listen to me. I'm having trouble. I need your help. Answer, respond, rescue me, help me. And those are lament psalms. And you notice here in uh, in the second half then, um, we have David praying a series of petitions or requests for God's help and guidance. And at each point along the way of this psalm, he gives reason why Yahweh should hear and answer his prayers. And so if you were going to just outline the psalm, you probably could just do verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 12 and just do a bare outline. I'm actually not going to approach the psalm quite that way today. I actually want to focus on something more specific, not the whole psalm, just a part of it uh, as we go. But I do want to give us a kind of a general sense of an overview of the psalm and what it teaches. The first two verses of the psalm provide an interesting contrast because David begins in verse one by asking that God would act on his behalf, right? Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. Uh, We've heard similar things already in other psalms. Again, just even um, in uh, you know, the recent Psalms like Psalm 142, Psalm 141, uh, and Psalm 140, there's, a, there's appeals for God to hear him. But notice in verse 1, what is the reason that David gives for why God should respond to him? What does he say there? Why don't you, you can help me out here. What does verse 1 say is the reason that David says we, God should hear and answer his prayer? Okay, his faithfulness. That's one reason. The second reason, his righteousness. He says, your faithfulness, your righteousness. Yahweh is someone who is faithful. That means he is loyal. He is trustworthy. He is dependable. He is someone who always does what is right. That's what righteous means. When David finds himself... Um, unfairly assaulted, unfairly set upon by enemies who who are mistreating him. He knows that God, the, the true God, Yahweh, who he worships, will not fail to do justice. Right? He's not going to overlook the fact that David is being mistreated because he is a righteous God and he is a faithful God. So David knows that. He's confident of that. The Lord who never changes will be compelled to act and deal with the ungodly. But let's stop for one second. Does anybody see a problem with that? If we start praying, Lord, you are faithful and you are righteous to deal with the wrongs that are done, to deal with injustice, to deal with the wicked. Anybody see where there might be a problem with that? Okay. Problem is, and it's almost as if David catches this right away, like almost as the words are coming out of his mouth and he realizes, um, I better follow this up with another thing. Because if Yahweh is moved to action, if he's going to come and sit in judgment and deal with David's enemies, the righteous and faithful judge can't just deal with David's enemies and their wickedness, right? He can't do that and leave David's unrighteousness alone. And so after, in verse 1, he says, God, please act. Notice what he says in verse 2. Let me summarize. On second thought, don't act. 
Because in verse 1, come, hear my prayer, answer me, be faithful and righteous. Oh yeah, you're faithful and righteous. Well, don't enter into judgment with me. Okay. That's what David is saying here. Now, let, let's understand this, because David is not asking God to become unjust. David's not saying to God, um, judge all those bad people out there, but leave me alone. It's not what he's saying. Because if he was, he couldn't speak of Yahweh's faithfulness and righteousness in verse 1. Right? He couldn't say, God, you are unchanging and righteous and you always do what's right. And now I'm going to ask you to do something that's not right for me for just a minute. You see, those two things don't go together. So that, that's not what David is, is doing here. But this is one of the great problems faced by Old Testament believers. We've seen it before in the Psalms. For instance, uh, back in Psalm 85, we read, verse 10, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. But wait a second. How is that possible? How can mercy and truth and righteousness and peace all get along? Doesn't God, if he's going to give peace to us, doesn't he have to sacrifice truth and righteousness? You see, that's the problem. And Psalm 85 deals with that issue a little bit. How can it be true that God is both merciful and true, righteous and brings peace at the same time? How is that possible? Well, the Apostle Paul asks the very same question in Romans 3. When he speaks about this, he says that God in his forbearance had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That's Romans 3. And Paul is talking about the way that God dealt with believers like David in the Old Testament. Okay, Paul is looking into the past and he's saying in the past, God passed over the sins that they committed. But how could God do that? How could God overlook David's sin and still be righteous himself? How could God overlook Moses' sins and still be righteous? How could he overlook Samuel's sins and still be righteous? How could he overlook Daniel's sins and still be righteous? How could he do that? How could an honest and just judge overlook someone's guilt without being corrupt? We talked about this during Sunday school. If a judge is sitting on the bench and he has before him a, a, a defendant and the evidence is clear that the defendant is guilty, and the judge says, I know the evidence says that you're guilty, but I'm going to dismiss the charges and let you go. We would rightly cry foul. That judge has done injustice, not justice. That judge has proven himself corrupt. And yet, Paul says it's what God has done. He did that with David. And the Old Testament saints, he passed over their sin. And Paul says, how is that possible? Well, then Paul answers the question. And here's what Paul says about that. I'm going to summarize. He says, God's righteousness is revealed in Jesus Christ. How is God's righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ? How is God righteous for what he's done? Because what he's done appears to be unrighteous. It looks like he's overlooked sin that he should have punished. It looked like he let people get away with sin that he should have judged. Paul says, how, does it, how is he righteous? Because Paul says, Jesus' blood is the propitiation for our sins. That's the word Paul uses. It means a satisfying payment. Jesus' blood was the payment that satisfied God's demand of justice. When Jesus died on the cross, God proved that he was righteous all along. He proved that he was righteous when he overlooked, when he passed over David's sin. 
which is what David is asking for here in Psalm 143. Paul says, God proved that he was right to do that because David's sins did not go unpunished. David's sins did not go unjudged. Those Old Testament saints who sinned and their sins were passed over, their sins were not ignored. God did not uh, set aside his righteousness and justice. What did he do? He took their sins, just like he took your sins and mine, and he placed them on Jesus Christ when Jesus died on the cross. Oh, David's sins were absolutely judged, condemned, and paid for in blood. It just wasn't David's blood. And Paul says, that's what makes God righteous. And the same thing is true for you and me. Just like David and the Old Testament saints, we can be declared righteous by God when we receive Jesus by faith. That's exactly what David is expressing here in Psalm 143. I'm not saying he's talking about Jesus. He doesn't know all of the details of what God has yet to reveal. He probably doesn't understand fully how all of this is going to work. But what David is praying for, and by the way, I know David didn't understand all of the details of this because Paul says in Romans 3 that God's righteousness was now revealed in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which implies that it wasn't revealed before that. So David couldn't have known all of the details of how it was going to work. What did David know then? Well, he clearly understood that a perfectly righteous and unchanging God can choose to show him mercy and pass over the judgment of his sins with the expectation that he will deal with them. And remember, David, faithfully, obediently offering the animal sacrifices that were required, believed in faith that those sacrifices, somehow, some way, God was going to complete the work of dealing with his sin. Again, David may not have understood all of the ins and outs. There's much to be revealed in future time from David. But what David is praying for here is that God would act justly, deal with the wrongs, but Lord, also show mercy. And he's not inconsistent in doing so. David is praying for what will ultimately only be answered in Jesus Christ. By the way, when you see... Um, when you see in the New Testament the book of Luke, the end of the gospel of Luke, there's a, an account after Jesus' resurrection where a couple of disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, remember? And they're very upset because this Jesus whom they had followed and they believed to be the Messiah, he's dead. And he was dead, he was buried, and three days later now, they're hearing stories that say he's been raised from the dead. And they're not sure what to make of all this and they're confused. And Jesus begins to walk with them and begins to talk with them. And Luke doesn't tell us everything that Jesus said, but Luke says, he summarizes and said that Jesus went back and he began with the Scriptures and he taught them and he showed them how the things in the Scriptures spoke of himself. Well, can I tell you, I don't know for sure if Psalm 143 was mentioned, but I guess it might have been. This might be one of those places where Jesus said, you know what? David, when he was praying that God would, who is faithful and righteous, would nevertheless be merciful, you know what? David was anticipating my death and resurrection. He didn't know all the details of it, but he was anticipating that God would deal with sin once and for all, finally, and would be able to show mercy to him. This is one of those passages that clearly is pointing ahead. David is looking for something. He's looking for God in his mercy to pass over judgment, even though he knows he deserves judgment. Now, verses 3 through 6, David then lays his troubles out before the Lord. And he, he describes his troubles here in terms of a hunt, uh, in verses 3 and 4 especially. His enemies have pursued him. Right? They, they, the, the, the language here suggests they've hunted him down. 
and they caught up with him. They captured him. And when they did, they crushed him to the ground. And he's so worn out. He's so tired. He's so exhausted. In verse 4, he says that his spirit is overwhelmed. His heart is troubled. And this, this suggests that he is almost ready to give up. He doesn't doesn't think he can go on any further. He doesn't think he can resist anymore. It's just too much. Maybe you felt that way too. But I like what he does in verses 5 and 6. Because we get to verses 5 and 6, and what does he do? He, He changes his focus here. Instead of focusing on his circumstances and on his enemies, he says, I remember the days of old. I remember the days of old. Sometimes we do this, right? We get out the photo albums and we remember all those years past and all the things that have happened along the way and we reminisce. We get a little nostalgic. Sometimes we do this and it's not a good thing. It's not healthy. We, we think, oh boy, I wish we could go back to the good old days. The reality is good old days weren't all that good. We just remember them that way. But we, we tend to look back sometimes in, an, in, in not in a healthy way. But David says, I'm looking back here. Looking back at the old days. Now, he's not referring to his life. He's referring before that. It's almost as if, um, you know, he's looking back on the things God has done. Think about Moses and the, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. The deliverance that God made there. Joshua and the children of Israel, uh, you know, marching around Jericho and the great deliverance there, or, or other times throughout the history of Israel where God has proven himself faithful. David is recognizing that in the past, the Lord has proved himself over and over again. He says, I meditate on all your works. That's his works in history. He's referring to the different acts that God has done in intervening for his people, in, in, in setting up one nation. Bringing, you know, think about Joseph and all the things that God did in Joseph's life. All of the puzzle pieces, or the, the puzzle, all of the, the chess pieces, if you will, that God arranged on the board, bringing Joseph uh, into uh, and, you know, the animosity with his brothers, having him sold into slavery. Uh, having him uh, 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 falsely accused and imprisoned and forgotten in prison for years and, and all of that so that then at the right moment in time when it was absolutely necessary, not only for the preservation of Joseph, not only for the preservation of Egypt, but for the preservation of Joseph's family, God raised Joseph up and then brought his family back. And all of that, You think about that. And that's the kind of stuff David says I'm reminiscing on. I'm thinking back on all of the great things that God has done. How he has worked. How he controls. How he he handles even the most difficult circumstances. There are lots of examples. And of course, again, you think about this. David is is writing this. David lived, uh, you know, 900s uh, BC. So there's quite a bit of history that he can look back to. But there's a lot of stuff that we read about in the Bible that hadn't happened yet. So we have more to look back on, don't we? We have more that we can look back and see. You realize that David didn't know anything about Daniel and the lion's den? Hadn't happened yet. Didn't know anything about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting thrown into a fiery furnace? Hadn't happened yet. Didn't know anything about... uh, uh, Sennacherib's army being destroyed in the middle of the night and, and, and the mighty Assyrians being sent back home packing because God sent an angel down to take care of that whole army by himself? Hadn't happened yet. But a whole lot of things that we know, and of course that's then to get to the New Testament, you know, you got Peter being imprisoned, guards chained on either side of him. He's going to be executed in the morning and the church is praying that night. And the Lord sends an angel and the, 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 the shackles fall off him. The guards are perfectly asleep. They have no clue what happened. Shackles fall off him. He gets up. The doors just swing wide open. He walks out of the prison. Good night. Can God deliver? Yeah. That's what David is saying. He goes, I'm remem- remembering all of the things you did before. And then notice the second thing. He says, I muse on the work of your hands. And that different term there. It, and the, 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 that expression suggests 
God's creative work. So he's going, first, I look at your work in history, and I think of all of the things you've done in the past that are so amazing, that give me reason for hope. But then I think about your creative works. I look at the world around me. I see your, your constant providence and sustaining work. Jesus, of course, talks about some of this in the New Testament, says that, uh, you know, God feeds the sparrows. He clothes the, the, the lilies in the field. God takes care and provides for all of the things that he's made. And David says, when I think about the world around, when I look at the creative work, when I look at the creation around me, that too stirs his heart. And here, what does it do for David? Notice what it does in verse 6. It creates in him a longing. What is it that David longs for? He says, I spread out my hands to you. I kind of like this. There's kind of, not a play on words, but there's kind of like a parallel here. God's, David says, I look at the work of your hands and I spread out my hands to you. It's like David's, and, and, and again, we, 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 we understand this, this lifting up of the hands in modern um, you know, modern times, we think of lifting up the hands as a sign of joy or celebration, but that's not really the way it's used in the book of Psalms primarily. It's an appeal to God in heaven that he is the, the one to whom David looks. He's the one that David seeks for comfort, for fellowship, for restoration. And David says, my soul longs for you. My life, my very person, my inner being longs for you. So his raising his hands is a physical expression of the longing of his heart. God, I want to be in your presence. I want you. I want fellowship with you. This whole first stanza is so challenging. It challenges us to, to, to ask and examine ourselves. What is it that we long for? What is it that you long for more than anything? David says, when I think about the past, uh, your, your, your past deliverances, when I think about your providence in the world and what you do, my heart longs for you. As if I were a desert land, thirsty for water, my, my heart longs for you. Of course, we're reminded of Psalm 42, where he talks about as the deer pants after the brook of water, so my soul longs for you. David here probably is borrowing some of the language and wording from other psalms. We've noted this before. The psalmists do this because they knew the scriptures. They meditated on God's word. And when we do that, God's word becomes the prayer of our heart. That's what he's doing. He's simply reflecting on these prayers, on these psalms, and he's bringing them all in. And he says, I long for you. This is what I want. All of this, by the way, is the introduction to get to what I want to say. So sorry, it will, I don't think it'll take too long. But um, the second stanza of the psalm contains a series of requests, and each one is kind of um, is 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 kind of accompanied by his defense or his his justification. But what I really want to do is I want to focus in on verses eight through ten, because in those verses. David's request is not so much for deliverance from his enemy. I mean, we, we've treated that subject already the last several weeks in the Psalms that we've looked at. And uh, not, not that that's not a bad thing for us to go over again, but I want to see that there's, there's some other nuances here of things that David talks about that I want to bring out. In verses 8 through 10, David prays not just for deliverance, but for guidance. And he begins there in verse 8 when he says, Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. For in you do I trust. The word loving kindness is the word chesed in Hebrew. We've come across this word many, many times in the Psalms. And that word refers to Yahweh's loyal love. It's always connected with the idea of a covenant. The idea that, 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 that Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God. That his, he is motivated by this chesed, this this loyalty and love to keep his covenant, to do what he has promised. And David is asking simply this, Lord, prove yourself faithful 
to keep the covenant with those who've trusted you. And then he continues, because there's a, there's a parallel here. The second half of the verse is parallel to the first. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. These are essentially synonymous lines here. God's loving kindness, his loyal love is displayed by showing his people what they ought to do. Giving them what I call divine direction. David does not know what to do. I mean, that's where he finds himself. This situation, this psalm, again, we don't know the historical setting, but, but David is clearly in distress. He's clearly got enemies who are opposing him. He's going to talk about them again in verse 12, where he talks about um, uh, God destroying them and judging them and, and afflicting them for what they've done to him. But David is in a circumstance where he doesn't know what to do. You ever been there? You ever, you ever been, I mean, literally at a moment in time where you just said, I honestly don't know what to do. I don't know how to react. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to respond. I just don't even have words. I don't know what to do. You ever been there? You ever felt that way? Today, okay. Yeah. I've been there. I know what that feels like. It's not really an unusual thing, is it? It's a big, kind of, kind of a common part of life. We, we get into circumstances all the time where we don't know what to do. I would say this as a parent. Um, I feel like that is something that I, I, I'm much more aware of as a parent now than I ever was before I became a parent. And the older my kids get, the more I feel this way. Because the more I realize, I don't know what to do. I get to the end of my understanding, my wisdom, my insight. I don't know what to do. And I have to cast myself on the Lord. I have to go to him and say, Lord, give me direction. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to respond. I'm not sure where to go from here. And that's what David is doing here. He's simply praying out for direction from God. I love the way George Cheever describes it. This was shared by Charles Spurgeon, but he says this, we are often brought to a stand, hedged up and hemmed in by the providence of God. Get that, God does this to us. <laughs> so that there seems no way out. A man is sometimes thrown into difficulties in which he sits down beginning to despair and says to himself, well, this time it's all over with me. You ever felt like that? <laughs> okay, I, I got nowhere else to go. It's over, done. Then, Cheever says, when God has drawn him from all self-confidence and self-resource, a door opens in the wall and he rises up and walks at liberty, praising God. God does this to cause us to depend on him. Now, this is more than David just asking for a sign. And I want you to notice this because he says, cause me to know the way in which I should walk. So I want direction. I want wisdom. I want understanding. He prays for that, but it's more than that. He is making a commitment here that he is going to do whatever God wants him to do. See how, see how he does this. Because notice what he says. In the first part, he says, cause me to know the way in which I should walk. Look at the next line. For I lift up my soul to you. David is not, he's not doing what we like to do often, which is say, Lord, why don't you send down the plans um, I'll, over, I'll, I'll look over them. I'll make a few notations, maybe some changes if we need to make some changes, and then I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get them notarized and I'll send them back to you. I'll approve of them. Isn't that how we, how we act a lot of times? We go to God and we say, God, help me to know what to do, but give me the, give me the plans and let me, let me kind of look over them and see how I feel about it. That's not what David is doing here. What David is doing is he is saying, Lord, I am going to do whatever you want me to do. I am lifting up my soul to you. I am giving myself completely to you. You direct me. You guide my steps. I am not taking control. 
So notice David is preemptively doing this. Right? He is committing himself beforehand to do whatever God leads. So he's not saying, give me the, you give me the list, you give me the map and the directions, and I'll decide if it's good. No, he's saying, I'm lifting my soul up to you. You direct me, tell me where to go. I'm not in charge of this. Now, again, we sometimes get the idea that we can ask God for direction without ever committing to actually doing it. This is, I think, part of the reason why sometimes we pray for wisdom and direction from God and he doesn't answer us or didn't give us what we want because what we really want is, God, tell me your plans. I'm not so sure I'm going to go along with it yet, but just tell me what you have in mind. We want God to show us his will, but, not with, but we're not willing to commit to doing it. When we do that, by the way, I think we're treating God, can I say this? We're treating God as if we can fool him, right? I can trick God into showing me what, he, what he's going to do, and then I'll decide if I really like it or not. But he won't know, because I'll be all sincere when I, when I pray. I mean, I, we don't say it in, that, in those words, right? But that's what we're doing. But God is not going to be fooled by that. So I think, again, I think he doesn't answer that prayer sometimes because he's not going to put himself under our judgment. Notice what David is doing here. I think the wording of David's prayer is important. He is first committing himself to obey whatever God would have him do as he's praying for guidance. I'm lifting up my soul, my life to you, Show me what you want me to do with it. That's what David prays. Now, there's a second point about, about guidance here in verse 10. David says in the first half of verse 10, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. This is different from what he said in verse 8. In verse 8, he said it was the way he should walk. It's different language here. Um, that was more of a practical question. As I said, he did not know what to do in his circumstances. He was set upon by enemies. He was harassed and hounded. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know where it was safe to go. He didn't know how to handle it. So he said, Lord, I don't know what to do. Give me direction. I'm yours. Lead me. Guide me. Just, talk, just, just show me what to do. But here, in verse 10, this issue is more of a moral question. What is pleasing to God? What is acceptable to God? When he speaks of God's will, that's what he's talking about here. What David wants is to have divine priorities. He wants God's will and God's purpose to be foremost. He wants to fashion his life in such a way that it pleases God. So his, his request here is not so much about just the immediate circumstance. It's more broad. It's more general about his life as a whole. And he stresses two things here that I think are really important. The first is this. I, I think this is significant. He does not assume that he already knows what is good and pleasing to God. He asks for Yahweh to teach him to do his will. He also doesn't act as though he is able to do whatever is pleasing to God of himself because he asks that Yahweh teach him to do his will. The wording of this is very important. He doesn't just want to know what God's will is. He says, God, teach me to do it. And who else but God could teach him these things? There's no wise man. There's no guru. There's no uh, self-righteous person who could possibly know the mind of God. And who would care enough about David to teach him to be pleasing to God. Only God can do this. If we want to have divine priorities, we have to confess that Yahweh is our God. And I like that here. He says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Right? He is emphasizing the relationship that he already has with the Lord. And he's saying, you are my God. So teach me. Show me what it is that pleases you so I can do it. Um, in his commentary on this psalm, John Goldingay offers a helpful insight. I want to read it for you. 
He says, as Christians, we are inclined to assume that we generally know what we should do in our moral and religious lives. Even though we grant that we may need God's help in enabling us to do it. Golden Gate says, these psalms make more allowance for our capacity to deceive ourselves about that. We forget just how deceptive sin is. Even the sin that remains in us. I'm convinced that Romans 7 is Paul talking about the indwelling sin that continues in the believer and the, the, the frustration and struggle that he has with wanting to do right and finding himself often unable to do right and hating his sin and yet finding himself often tempted and falling back into sin. And he concludes Romans 7 by saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And of course, we should never stop without reading Romans 8 where he says that the answer to that question is, is it's Christ. It's been provided in Christ by the Spirit. But, but re regardless of that, I think Paul there is emphasizing the fact that, that he realizes that sin that still dwells in me as a Christian is very powerful. And I need God's help. I need Him to teach me what His will is. Teach me what pleases Him. Teach me what is good and right and acceptable for Him. And then teach me to do it. I mean, how often have believers and do believers rationalize some sinful choice and defend it as it's God's will for their life? I mean, I've, I've heard believers, at least professing believers, rationalize leaving their spouse and their family, abandoning them so they can marry another person and rationalize that and argue that it's God's will for their life. Hogwash. But the reality is sin is very deceptive. We need God to teach us what is right and good because there are times where our own sin will so cloud our judgment, so twist our thinking, that we may believe that we are morally right when we are absolutely wrong. David says, Lord, teach me to know your will. No, I take that back. He says, teach me to do your will. We want to live lives that are pleasing in his sight. We must go to him. We must seek the Lord. We must pray that he would, would, would give us these divine priorities, that he would teach us his will and what pleases him that we might do it. There's one more element here of, of guidance in the second half of verse 10 that David touches on related to what we just said. But he says there, your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. We've already touched on this point a little bit. David said in verse 8, I lift my soul up to you. In verse 10, teach me to do your will. What does David understand? He realizes it's not enough just to know God's will. It's not enough just to know the right thing to do. Because the reality is I can know the right thing to do and I can still do the wrong thing. In fact, I can know the right thing to do and more often than not, I'll fail to do the right thing if I'm trying to do it on my own. We lack the strength to follow through. We lack the determination. We lack the ability. What does David ask for? This is what I think is so amazing here in this psalm. David asks that Yahweh would actually help him to do his will, but how? It's by means of the Spirit. Your Spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. The Holy Spirit. David prays that the Holy Spirit of God would lead him. That, um, th that idea of leading here is the idea of shepherding. David recognizes that he needs a shepherd. 
And he needs a shepherd who will lead him on level ground. That's an alternate translation there to the land of uprightness. The idea of the land of uprightness or level ground, it's a place where you won't trip. It's a place where you'll stand upright because you won't fall down. And I guess, guess what? The Spirit of God is good. He will not lead you to a place where you're going to fall. You see, when you commit to following Him and you seek His will and you seek His guidance, He will lead you on a good path. He will lead you to a place that is level ground where you won't fall. And again, we have the image here of a shepherd. Picture a shepherd who guides his sheep. Where does he guide the sheep? He guides them to a place of safety. A place where there's food and water. A place where there's warmth and protection at night. Uh, This word lead here in, in verse 10 is the same word that's used in Psalm 23. David writes, The Lord is my shepherd. In verse 3, he says, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David is praying for divine shepherding. He wants a shepherd. And who is the shepherd in David's view? It's the Spirit. The Spirit of God that's going to lead him and guide in each step of the way. Not just in this present crisis. David's concern isn't just for the here and now. It's not just this moment Yes, he's in distress now, but he wants to please God with his whole life. And he says, I've got to have the Spirit. I've got to have your Spirit lead me. I've got to have a shepherd to guide me so that I can follow in a good path, so I can be in in an upright land, in a place where I don't fall, so I can be in a place where I am pleasing and acceptable. I'd be remiss if I didn't quote Charles Spurgeon at least once. He says, The way is long and steep, and he who goes without a divine leader will faint on the journey. But with Jehovah to lead, it is delightful to follow, and there is neither stumbling nor wandering off. He is our shepherd. But this is the thing that I love about this. This psalm, there's so many things here that are just amazing. But just like he did in verse 2. In verse 2, David prayed, right, about something that was still a future hope, something that he could not have experienced fully and understood fully in his time, right? He he wanted something that was a future reality, Jesus purchasing pardon for sin by his death, burial, and resurrection so that God doesn't have to bring us into judgment, even though no one in his sight is righteous. David acknowledges that. Well, here in verse 10, David is praying for something that also has not yet come to pass, but will. And that is the good Spirit of God would come and shepherd his people to a land of righteousness. What did Jesus teach his disciples? He taught them the night that he was betrayed that he was going to leave them, but he would send his spirit. Notice what he says in John 14, verses 16 to 18. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Do you think David ever felt like he was an orphan? Abandoned? All alone? That's why he prayed. That's why he prayed. Not just to know God's will. Not even just for God to give him strength to do his will. He prayed ultimately for the presence of God's Holy Spirit to lead him in it. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, he has sent his Spirit to dwell within you. He has answered this prayer of David's. So we can pray this too. We can join in David's prayer because the answer is readily available. The Spirit of God dwells in you. 
to be in you, to remain in you. You're not an orphan. You're not alone. So today, will you trust him to lead you, to guide you, not just to know his will, but to do it, to live a life that is pleasing and acceptable before him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, see in David's prayer here his wonderful faith. And certainly David couldn't have known all of the details of what was to come to pass, but his prayers provide the basis. We see in Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and then sending the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus answering David's prayer. Lord, if we trust in Jesus Christ today, not only will you not enter into judgment, but you pour out your spirit into our hearts to guide us into the truth and to guide us in a life of faith that is pleasing to you. And Father, we often don't know what to do. We struggle with knowing what is right and what is good and what is acceptable. We wrestle with these things. I pray today that you, by your spirit, would guide us and show us what you want us to do. And then lead us each step. If we just follow you, trusting that you're not going to, to make us fall, but you're going to guide us in a good way. You're going to guide us in a way that is right and safe and blessed. Oh, I pray you'd help us today to seek your face and to follow you, to commit ourselves to following you with all of our heart. And if there's anyone here who's never turned to you and trusted in you today, I pray they would do that. They would beg you for mercy and pardon for their sins. They would seek to follow your guidance and your, your word, your will. By trusting in you, looking for those things that only you can give, as David was doing here. Oh, I pray you'd help us to live lives that are pleasing before you today. We trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.